Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're looking this morning at Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. This is the, the second in our series on small groups. And uh, there's a topical element uh, to these uh, two sermons that we're doing now back to back last week and this week. But uh, at College Church, we teach the Bible. And so there's a topical uh, focus to the teaching. It's, it's really expositional, you know. Uh, even when we do topical stuff at College Church, we're still doing expositional stuff. We just put a topical clothing on it, uh, if you see what I mean. Hello, 11 o'clock, are you there? Good, 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 good. Okay, so you understand what I'm saying. So though we've got to focus uh, in a topical way, we are really going to explain this text in its context in Scripture and then let the application to small groups for us as a community, as a church, fall out from that exposition. So it's Acts 5, verse 42, and uh, as we turn now to God's Word, let's, let's pray together. Father, that uh, song we have just together sung says, So Spirit come, and so, Father, we pray as we have sung, So Spirit come. Lord, would you soften uh, my heart as I preach your word to receive fresh instruction, application from your word? Would you soften the hearts of all of us here this morning? Similarly, so Spirit come, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Well, as I say, we're doing the second in our series on small groups. And last week, as you may remember, we looked at small groups in terms of why. Why are we doing small groups as a community? And uh, we discovered that Dr. Luke has an overarching theme to his uh, book, Acts, the second in a two-volume series. And that overarching theme is spirit-empowered witness to Jesus globally. And so he begins, doesn't he, with saying how Jesus said that the Spirit would come and you would be empowered to be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that story goes all the way through Acts until at the end we find Paul at the heart of Rome um, delivering boldly and without hindrance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that story carries on. The witness to Jesus carries on. Here now in Wheaton, what Luke described as 
Jesus began to do and teach in Luke and now is continuing to do through the work of his Spirit as the Word is proclaimed, is continuing, is carrying on. So even in Wheaton, uh, we also are hearing the gospel this morning. And underneath that overarching theme, we saw that Luke described uh, the New Testament church. And immediately we asked ourselves whether this is really how we think of church. We tend to think of church as an institution or an old-fashioned gathering or something that you have to do to get out of bed in the morning, but really, you'd rather not. And yet, over this theme, in each part, is the church. We began to see how for Dr. Luke... The church is the engine for gospel growth all around the world. And we ask ourselves, is that how we think of church? And then we looked at one particular pericope, one particular description of that early church. Luke, as a very good historian, as most scholars would recognize, described the early church in great detail. And so in Acts chapter 2, as we considered, he described this particular church. And we saw the sort of dynamic interactions that were taking place, the amazing commitment of this local church, the magnetic nature of the church that could only really be um, analyzed, understood, by realizing that there was someone and something taking place that was drawing people to this Person. And so then we applied it to our renewed commitment to community as expressed in small groups. And so that's what we did last week. And as I say, that's very much why. Why are we going to do small groups? What is the motivational rationale for that? What is the impetus to that? What is the why for our small groups? Well, this week... We're not considering why, we're considering how. And when I say we're considering how, I don't mean how as the mechanics of a small group or the nuts and bolts, the basic sort of elements of how you do small group ministry. That's important. But this this passage in its context is not about that. Worthy as it is, it is somewhat important to know how you can manage to stop that person who, frankly, loves to talk and will always talk in a small group at great length unless you can find out how to stop them. Uh, Or, you know, the the person who makes some comment that is, uh, you know, his orthodoxy and the comment they're making is somewhere over here, not very closely connected to orthodoxy, and you've got to find out a way to how to stop them from saying that sort of thing and redirect the focus of the attention. um, Thank you, brother, that was most interesting. Does anyone else have something to offer? Uh, I'm not considering how in terms of the mechanics of small group ministry, but something bigger and broader and I hope rather more profound than that for us that nonetheless will explain how in our context with all our pressures and all our temptations, And all the things that prevent us from committing to Christ and to community. How, as busy as we are, even so on a Labor Day weekend, if you're anything like me, you're answering email and you're doing work and you're responding to this or that issue, how are we going to do small groups? And uh, to that end, I think it applies 
very directly. And what uh, Luke is saying here is that uh, there is a characteristic response of the early church to pressure, persecution. The church responds to persecution with a characteristic response, or a characteristic uh, response, and that is unceasing proclamation. The church responds to persecution with unceasing proclamation. And so with all our pressures, their pressures rather more extreme, I want us to notice this characteristic, and I will demonstrate it, for it is quite extraordinary. It is entirely counterintuitive that when this particular organism... This particular entity called the New Testament church is pressurized. They do not shut down and stop talking about Jesus. In fact, precisely the reverse. The church grows. And it is a characteristic response of the New Testament church to persecution, unceasing proclamation. I will first demonstrate that characteristic And then explain it. For Luke does both those things in this sub-theme that is in his uh, second part of this two-volume set on Christian origins, the book that we know as Acts. There is this sub-theme of the church's response to persecution. He doesn't just demonstrate the characteristic. For if, if we could only observe it, we would be rather intimidated by it. Look at those amazing people and what they did. And how on earth could I do that? No, he explains it in such a way that uh, we too can live in this characteristic way and have a similar kind of power, ability, and uh, behavior responding to persecution or other pressures that we experience today with unceasing proclamation. So let me first demonstrate it and then explain it. First, I will demonstrate it. And you'll see in our verse that uh, they responded, in verse uh, 42 of chapter 5, they responded to the pressure that they experienced. They'd just been brought up before the Sanhedrin, and they'd been, uh, they were being persecuted, they'd been beaten, and their response is they did not stop teaching and proclaiming the good news. They did not cease. There is an unceasing of teaching and proclamation Jesus Christ in response to persecution. Well, it's not just there, I began to notice as I studied these things this week in Acts. If you come back with me a little earlier in Acts, chapter 4, you'll see the same pattern, the same characteristic, which is most surprising. Acts 4, there's this growing opposition to the New Testament church, and uh, it gets to one stage in Acts 5. It's an earlier stage in Acts chapter 4, and again, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, and they're told to no longer speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, and their response is, well, we cannot but keep on speaking about what we have seen and heard. We, we Unceasing proclamation, we're going to keep on doing it, and in fact, as the story shows, more and more and more. It's almost as if the New Testament church is like a a Ziploc bag with some water in it, that when you push it to one place, it just bulges up somewhere else. There's something about the very entity. So I'm not just saying, you know, you guys have got to try harder. I'm trying to help you see there's something about the nature of this organism that characteristically responds like this. It is its knee-jerk reflex, if you like. 
And see the same thing uh, not only with external pressure, but with internal. So in Acts chapter 5, there's this story, of course, of Ananias and Sapphira who uh, compromise and it's all rather sad and difficult in one way. And yet, in another way, the response you would have thought to the church would be a time of, uh, of introverted uh, questioning about whether they were doing things in the right sort of pattern or whether they should take a slightly different direction to their ministries, all the ways that sh- sometimes organizations respond to compromise. Not here. Instead, they're pressurized internally as Satan is opposing the New Testament church by external persecution and internal pressure. Great fear seized the whole church, verse 11 of chapter 5, and then verse 12, the apostles before many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and then verse 14, more and more believe in the Lord. Unceasing growth, proclamation, there's a characteristic response to persecution of this, by this organism, the New Testament church, all the same uh, in Acts chapter 8, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to that passage. Just trying to demonstrate this sub-theme before I explain it, because until you really see it, you will not think it needs explaining. When Really, when you see it, you will think, this is quite extraordinary. How could this be the case? So in Acts chapter 8, uh, you'll find there's a great persecution breaks out against the church at Jerusalem. Everyone except the apostles is scattered. Stephen, of course, is now buried, and there's mourning. Saul begins to destroy the church. Next week, we'll begin to look at the story of how Saul became Paul. I will tell that story next week. And then verse 4, wherever they go, they preach the word. It is an extraordinary response to persecution. The same thing you can see time and time again throughout Acts, so that if you come right to the end of Acts, and you can turn with me again to Acts 28 and verse 31, there is Paul, of course, who has been persecuted and uh, thrown in jail and taken off. He's appealed to uh, Caesar, and so he's gone off to Rome, and there he is in the heart of Rome, in the center of the empire. He's under house arrest, and verse 31, great boldness, without hindrance, unceasing, Proclamation. Now, perhaps you don't think that is that extraordinary, but when you understand some of these words that we very quickly skip over, I think you will begin to see just how extraordinary it is. So, Acts 5, our text for this morning, verse 40, the apostles are called in and they are beaten or flogged. This is almost certainly the 40 lashes minus one that was administered to those that the uh, Jewish authorities at the time would have thought were no longer within orthodoxy as a final warning before they were expelled from the community of Israel. They were beaten. Hazan, an official at at the time, would have administered it or overseen it somehow or other. And this is how historian John Pollock described such a beating. The Hazan picked up a heavy whip formed by a four-pronged strap of calf hide with two prongs of donkey hide long enough to reach the navel from behind and above. He stood on a stone and with one hand using all his might 
quote-unquote, therefore I think an instruction, using all his might, brought it down over the culprit's shoulder to curl round and cut his chest. Thirteen lashes were counted. One, two. While a reader intoned curses from the law. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou might fierce the glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then thou, the law will make thy plagues wonderful. And after the 13th uh, on the chest, the whipping was transferred to the back. 13 hard strokes on one shoulder, 13 across the other, cutting across wheels, that is deep cuts, wheels, W-E-A-L-S, wheels, cutting across wheels already bleeding. Now, if that isn't a dramatic enough description, he goes on to um, compare a first-hand account written rather later of a similar beating by someone called Ralph Rashley from early Australia who says the first dozen strokes were like jagged wire tearing furrows in the flesh. And the second dozen seemed like the filling of the furrows with molten lead. Sensations of intense and intolerable pain. And they were beaten. And their response? Unceasing proclamation? How? Well, let me try to explain. This characteristic explained, for these are ordinary men, like you and I. What on earth could make them behave in this kind of way? And Luke is indeed also, I think, deliberately not only describing this as a sub-theme of his book, he is also deliberately explaining it because he's writing, of course, to people at the time who are beginning to be persecuted. This is the context of Luke's authorship of this book. He's trying to help them see how they could stand up how, like these early disciples and apostles stood up. And so uh, for his original readers, beginning to face persecution opposition, for their faith. They, they, they could just be intimidated by these people, but no, he wants to explain it so they too could have a resource. Perhaps not all of us are Richard Wormbrandt, who was so wonderfully faithful in prison, but how could an average person like you and me, with all our weaknesses, meet these challenges like this? How are we going to keep on going when someone criticizes us for our faith? How are we going to keep on going when a particular moral standard that we hold as Christians causes us to be opposed at business, in business, at work, at home, at school? You go to college, church? Really? Or you face the pressure of a sickness or a disease, and the thought in your head is, this Jesus loves you? Why are you suffering like this? 
or, you know, you get up early in the morning, there's no coffee in the fridge, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous. From the profound to the mundane. Well, Luke, I think, gives three explanations. They're subdivisions and one overall summary explanation with which I will conclude. But I want to break it down for you so you can see how profound it is. Those three explanations are authority, pneumatology, which is a fancy way of saying the work of the Holy Spirit, and eschatology, uh, which means the last things. Authority. Look with me at chapter 4 and verses uh, 19 to 20. Well, it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, authority. Uh, They're in front of the authorities for their nation, the highest court of Israel, the supreme court. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak unceasing of what we have seen and heard. Now, what is this authority response that they have an insight uh, that uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, wants us to understand? Their response to persecution in this instance is explained by their understanding of the ultimate locus of authority, the ultimate place locus of authority. So they, of course, understood that the Sanhedrin had authority. But they also understood that there was an ultimate locus of authority, namely God. And so there are human authorities before whom we rightly submit, as Paul will explain in Romans towards the end of that letter. But theirs is a delegated authority. And when they exercise authority in a way that goes beyond their delegated limits, they, as here, perhaps tell us even not to follow Jesus, then our understanding of the ultimate locus of authority means we cannot but keep on speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, this was the key principle that motivated the Reformation, despite the opposition they faced. Now, I understand that Scripture has experienced hundreds of years of criticism and all this, but in the end, when you are perhaps faced with a brilliant man, a celebrity, an author, who makes a strident, even persuasive case for denying God, and perhaps you can come up with explanations at one level or another, but in your mind you begin to think, well, maybe there are some intellectual aspects of what he's saying that are interesting at least, and one day I predict you will have to decide whether you'll listen to him or to God. The reason they kept on going is because they understood the ultimate locus of authority. Pneumatology, the work of the Holy Spirit. This is chapter 5, and this is the intense reality of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verses 1 through to 16. Again, it's that story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is usually preached as a sort of downer, but really, in the context of Acts, it's intended to show us that even in that sort of situation, there is unceasing proclamation. Why? Because of the intense reality of pneumatology, the intense reality of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus is present, real, and powerful. And so you'd have thought after there being this compromise that they would have 
been quiet and gone into a season of self-reflection. But no, because Ananias and Sapphira had not just lied to the community, but lied to the Holy Spirit. Because they understood that, verse 11, great fear sees the whole church, and as I already explained, verse 14, more and more became believers because of the intense reality of the Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps for those of us here this morning who are Christian leaders, this will be important one day. You'll be faced with a situation a bit like this, perhaps, where you ask yourself, how could God bring any good out of this? And you'll be tempted to say, it's time to take a step back and no longer be so confident with my work or my ministry. Perhaps you will remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira because of the intense reality of the Holy Spirit. Instead of giving up, you will move forward. Why? Because the Spirit of Jesus is present and powerful. Pneumatology. But then I think most remarkably of all are verse X. Chapter 5, verse 42, they didn't cease teaching and proclaiming. But not only that, verse 41, they're happy. (laughs) They leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace to the name. Are they just masochists? What's going on here? Well, I remember I said that uh, Acts is the second volume of a two-volume set from Dr. Luke on Christian origins. And so turn with me to what I think was in their minds, Luke chapter 6 and verse 23. Luke 6 verse 23. Jesus is speaking and He is telling His disciples how they are to be happy even if they are opposed. And He says specifically, verse 23, In that day, rejoice. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, see, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Here's what they're thinking We're going to heaven. If I ever had any doubts before about it, At this moment, as I stand for Jesus and do not give in, I know as sure as anything can be certain that I will be in heaven with Jesus. Don't you remember that that promise he spoke? In that day rejoice. In other words, here is what the apostles were realizing. At this moment, as they were being flogged on account of their profession of the name of Jesus, they were being assured of their heavenly reward concomitantly at the same time. It was a specific promise of Jesus that this kind of opposition would be an evidence, a mark, a sign that those who received that sort of opposition were indeed going to heaven. 
of course, the opposition, the persecution was not meritorious in some way. It did not give them the right to go to heaven. But it showed them that as they were being opposed for Jesus' sake, so their loyalty was being proved. Their citizenship was being affirmed. They were truly of another world. Therefore, their destiny was heaven. And I tell you, as a pastor who, by my stage of life, has seen more people die than probably most people at this point in their life, nothing could be more important than understanding that realization. Perhaps you're someone who's um, gave their life to Jesus a long time ago. And inside, from time to time, you're wondering whether really that is your destiny, whether really you are indeed going to heaven. Look back at the times when you've had to choose between him and some other master. Perhaps the pressure to follow another Lord, another experience, has at times been intense, even if not as intense as this. Though perhaps it has for someone here this morning. Certainly that's a reality globally. Perhaps you've even failed at times as they had. Perhaps as the flogging began, you doubted. Perhaps you've wondered whether you could keep on going with those health issues or those internal questions. But when you've had to choose... Who have you chosen to follow, despite the pressure to conform? It's a sign, you see, a Jesus-inscribed sign that really your loyalty is of another world. When you were teased or pressured in some way, if you were counted worthy for suffering for the name, you can have great joy that your destiny is heaven. And with that reality, wow, it all changes, doesn't it? Of course I'm going to tell people about him. Of course I'm going to give my life for him, for I know that my, my destiny is an unfolding panorama of glory. Perhaps you've never given your life to Jesus at all. No more delay. No more put it off. No more wait. For these eternal realities are sure as is witnessed by the suffering church here in Wheaton and all around the world every day. But we stand for a bigger, higher eschatology. Last things, destiny. Well, what about small groups then? <clears throat> Hmm. 
Well, it's an application, isn't it? I mean, we uh, meet in the temple, the larger gathering, and from house to house. We see that pattern here. But specifically, as we notice this characteristic response to persecution and suffering in Acts, when we're faced with pressures in our own lives, busyness, not wanting to actually share what is going on in our own lives with someone else in a smaller group, We find an explanation for doing so in the authority of God, in the intense reality of the Holy Spirit, and eschatology, that there is a final destiny that is more important than what's on TV tonight. Do you see what I mean? Now, I, I'm going to finish it with a, finish this sermon with an illustration because as I said these three are really summarized by one thing that is being with Jesus so if you come with me back to Acts chapter 4 you'll see that this is the way that they describe what was distinct about these people Acts chapter 4 verse 13 this is what those who observed them in those early days noticed when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled um, they hadn't been to Wheaton poor things Ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that they'd been with Jesus. His authority, His Spirit, His promise, being with Jesus. Let me finish with an illustration which is fun, but I think makes the point as well. Not that you have to apologize for an illustration being interesting, I don't think. In a restaurant in uh, Ireland... A tourist was sitting at a table when the, one of the waiters came up to him and asked him to move because this happened to be the restaurant that one person called Bono liked to visit, and that was his table. And he just called, and he wanted to bring a friend, a guest, along to his favorite restaurant to sit at his favorite table. And so the tourist, of course, obliged and moved to a different table. And before too long, Bono arrived at this uh, restaurant, sat down with his friend, and they had a nice meal together while... Everyone else in the restaurant watched, of course, I suppose. <laughs> Poor Bono. And, uh, and, and there it went on. And at the end of the meal, Bono and his friend got up to leave. And this tourist, uh, with um, some trepidation but uh, confidence, that having been asked to move a uh, table, perhaps he could get away with it, went up to Bono and said, uh, excuse me, but could your friend possibly take a picture of me with you? And Bono obliged. And so they, you know, he put his arm around him or something like that. And the friend took a photograph. And Bono and his friend... Uh, left and uh, the tourist sat down and pretty much immediately one of the waiters came up to the tourist at the table and said I cannot believe you just did that and uh, the tourist says well, what do you mean I Bono didn't seem to mind it was a nice picture I'm gonna you know email it to all my friends it's already on Facebook I mean, what's, what's the problem said, you just asked Bruce Springsteen to take a picture of you with Bono Well, it's a silly illustration in some ways, but I wonder whether we are a bit like that. Being with Jesus, His authority, His Spirit, His return. Let's pray together.
Our Lord, as we've uh, considered uh, persecution uh, for the name of Jesus and applied it to our situations here, we, uh, and that's legitimate and fine to do, and it really does apply, I think, fairly. Yet at the same time, Lord, we are aware that there are people right now, your people, who are suffering for the name of Jesus physically. And so I want to take a moment to pray for them. Lord, I pray that you, in these countries that we could all name, Lord, that you, by your authority, by the power of your Spirit, by your promised return, you would strengthen our brothers and sisters to stand firm with joy. Lord, I also want to pray for us. We probably do not face physical persecution, at least yet in this country, at this point in time in history. It's unlikely. And yet uh, we do face pressures at work, at home, internally, questions. Lord, would you strengthen us by the same convictions of uh, the authority of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, and the return of Jesus to stand firm and to have unceasing proclamation for the name of Jesus and for his glory with great joy. And Father, we pray this would be evidenced in uh, our small groups. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.